As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continued to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year, and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. Welcome to Sup FM, the sport's leading podcast, where we speak to inspiring people from the fastest growing water sport in the world. Our aim is to help you maximise your own experiences of stand-up paddleboarding and to deepen your love of the water as we chat with people from both inside and outside the SUP world. Every episode is designed to inspire, support and provide you with a deeper immersion through my conversations with leading athletes, scientists, adventurers, TED speakers and New York Times best-selling authors. If you like what we do, there are plenty of ways to support the podcast, including telling your friends, following us on social media. You can even buy me a coffee on Patreon or you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which will help others to find us. Whatever you can do, we appreciate it. This episode is part of our Yukon 1000 mini season where we do a deep dive over several episodes into the ultimate adventure race challenge and the longest paddle race on the planet where we'll talk to the race organizers, teams and individual paddlers in the lead up, in the start town just ahead of the race and after the finishing line, closely following what many describe as a truly epic odyssey of a race. So could you introduce yourself, please? Hi, I'm uh, John Friff. I am the race director of the Yukon 1000. I managed to get hold of John in May, just before he did most of the route himself, unsupported with a bunch of British Army veterans and a month or so ahead of the start of the Yukon 1000 race in July. John is the race director of the Yukon 1000, and it's him and his team who set the rules, run the operation, monitor the paddlers during the race, and pull them off the water if they miss the cutoff. And ahead of asking him about what drew him to the Yukon in the first place, I also said how surprised I was at how the Yukon 1000 comes with such a uniquely British identity, because not only is John British, but the original founder of both this race and the Yukon River Quest also came from Britain. It was, yeah. It's a it's a chap called Peter Coates, an expat. But I guess um, I'd, I'd sort of travelled up there a, a few times before. Um, I'm sort of into the clearly into the the, the outdoors, uh, mm. whatever it may be, run, cycle, paddle, climb. Uh, and I've been up there on a few few trips, and then uh, I was looking for something to to empty the tank. Found the thousand, uh, and I entered that in uh, back in sixteen. 
And then I, I carried on doing a few expeditions up there. I used Peter's infinite wisdom on all the sort of rivers and tribes that feed it. And then um, he, he was pretty stretched with uh, running the quest as well. And so he asked me to run it. It's pretty stressful for him. So um, Peter yeah, is an expat uh, and moved out there a while ago. And he was really interested in the data of the kayak versus the canoe over a thousand miles. He thought it sort of level out, and, and sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. And so that, that's my interest in the area. The, the area itself, I don't think there's anywhere else it. I've been, I've been around. Uh, I think it really deserves that title of Last, last Frontier, um, and it really is. I, th- I think it's the people that go up there and the people that draws are the people with the right skills, uh, you know, cross skills. Uh, and those with those skills enjoy it. Those who don't, um, it, it may not be a great experience. So... For me, uh, the the inaccessibility, the hostility, the beauty—it's all it all ticks the boxes. So even if this wasn't happening, I'd still be going up there. I think. So, um, so I understand you're an ex-military man. So, in terms of your love of adventure, did that come from your military backgrounds and your adventure training, or, or, have, you, or have you always had that love of the outdoors? I think uh, it's a great question, and it's it's one I'm still working out. If I'm honest, uh, many people think I would have uh, had enough. Uh, of living outside but um actually i i found it sort of uh i just found it good for my soul um I, I, there's definitely a sort of point in my career where i got paid for what i know and not what i do and that didn't really sit well with me sort of long-term career soldier that um you know i'd come from I'd come all the way through the systems it was in all the ranks and so there i got to a period where it was a really busy time in the military career away a large chunk of my life and then if I'm honest, struggled a wee bit when I came back to reality. And so my way out was to sort of every year just to get out there and, and, and stretch my skills, empty the tank. Uh, and that worked for me. That was just it. You know, I'm not really a drinker, not really a smoker, bit of a quiet man, if, if, if some would say. And so that, that, that worked for me. And so as long as I can, I'm physically in health, I keep doing that. And so regardless of the race, um, for instance, this Sunday, I'll go down. Uh, I get. I, I prove the route every year before the races go down it, and I, and I do it with a load of wounded veterans, uh, amputees. This this year I've got a couple of amputees, a couple of guys that are blind, and I take them down the route. You know, uh, two weeks before the races go down. So that's a, that's a bit of me. We we bit giving back. Uh, I get a lie out of that being with those those troops. Um, uh, it's, it's very therapeutic. I can show them that part of the world. Uh, and I'm sort of um, like a proud parent because mm. it's like not, not many people get up there and it's great to show people, look at this place. I think people just sort of think it's cold and barren all year round until they get up there and those those summer months are spectacular, even in the winter. Yeah. So I guess that's my sort of love affair, ongoing love affair with that, that place. Um, I've got a young family, otherwise I'd, I'd be up there in a heartbeat living mm. in like, like some hobo in the woods. So... You mentioned about emptying the tank. There's no better event to do that than this. And uh, your first experience was back in 2016. I'm imagining that you were a hugely experienced paddler, many years of experience under your your belt when you went into that uh, Yukon competition. Am I uh, miles away from the truth on that one? You you couldn't be further. So yeah, I reckon <laughs> I reckon I had about a good eight hours in the tank before that. So <laughs> so. I, I, I knew I was fit at the time. I've always sort of been pretty fit. I knew I had the wilderness skills off the boat, 
super confident off the boat. I knew I could navigate. Um, uh, and I've done a hell of a lot of research, but how do you replicate that water in the UK? You just can't, you really can't. And so, yeah, you can go up and down a section of the Thames near Reading, which I did endlessly for, for those eight hours. But I kind of figured for a bit of endurance stuff that I'd done previously that nothing you could do could replicate that on the body. No matter what you did, the end of the first day was going to really hurt um, a good sort of 18-hour paddle with all the weight and all the kit in the boat, wearing the clothes, on the diet you're going to be on. You know, you're never going to fully replicate it. And I was pretty confident in, in 90% of the skills except the paddling bit. Mm. Uh, and so that's why I made it a little bit easier on myself. I went for a canoe over a kayak. I think it's it's less wearing on the body uh, than than a canoe, and I definitely got that bit right. And then. Uh, as I said before, I'm really into indigenous people, those who went before you. And so, you know, uh, I really like the thought of those who went down the river before me were in little, you know, the, the craft was not much different, covered in birch bark. Mm. That was about it, really, and a bit of resin. So I, I kind of like that angle as well. And um, yeah, so eight hours in, and then, uh, and I really like the, the sort of, when I rang Peter Coates, I said, listen, I can't paddle a yard. In fact, I don't even like water can I come to your race? But these are all my other skills. He was like, there's an old school element to it that I really liked. And I've, I've tried to pull that thread mm. through with into this race now that, um, he really respected the honesty, integrity. And he yeah. was like, well, he was like, well, you've got a year, you've got a year to prep. So get good in a year. So albeit eight hours wasn't good enough. I probably did get it right. Uh, but it was a steep learning curve for the first three days. That's for yeah. sure. Well, for that length of um, race, you, you get fit, you develop skills on the road, don't you? And I guess you could say that because of the rules of the competition, so we, we can talk a bit about that in a second, but I guess one of the key ones is, as you've already mentioned, you paddle for 18 hours and then six hours on the shore recuperating. Yeah. Uh, really, that those six hours are the real critical thing to plan for, aren't they? I mean, you've got to get the best that you can out of those six hours. Yeah, you, you you couldn't be more right, and so and I think I think a lot of teams downplay that, right? So they there's a lot of teams, particularly from the US, that are unbelievable paddlers. Uh, you know that they have these great racing racing circuits over, particularly over in Maine area. Um, they have this great marathon race circuit, one day sort of twenty thirty miles, and these people are like unbelievable machines on one, on one day when you start adding that to, to seven days, and in fact, you can see it on the data by day three, that's, that's completely having the opposite effect that, and it catches them completely by surprise, you know, and, and that's whether your diet, which I always say to teams, you know, don't do your diet on the food you're going to do it on the first time you come on the race. And mm. there's a lot of these sort of scientific people now that take these just drinks, mm. you know, they just go for these drinks and no hard food, Yeah, which is, you know, I don't know if that works for you, but, you know, a week in, you're going to want a little mm. bit more substance yeah. than just drinking powders. And, and and I've seen a few teams do it now. And in fact, the guys, the guys that smashed the record last year, they were just on powders and, and credit to them. Unbelievable. But they didn't look good at the end. No. They really didn't. They really didn't. And, and you know, as I, as, as I'll sort of, you know, the, the 2000 that I'm looking at now, that'd be really interesting to see if that works. I don't, mm. I, I'd bet against it, but it depends what works for you. And so you, it's a, there's a whole plethora of skills that add up to this race. And actually, you know, the more I, the more I run this and study it and sort of, a, you know, obviously I've done a few more things. I've gone all the way to the sea on the river and stuff. Um, paddling is just, it's actually a smaller part than you think. It really is. It's about 
It's about your preparations going on it, no injuries. You know, no bad blood between your partner. You guys mm-hmm. get on and that you've probably been stretched. That's a, probably a bigger uh, player in teams not going well than most people think. Mm. You know, issues with the partner. You've overlooked some skills thinking the other person's covered it, whether it be navigation or GPS skills. And then you find out on the river that that person hasn't done it or you both haven't done it. And, and the confidence, when the confidence erodes as a team, you're just kind of getting through it as opposed to racing and thriving in the environment. And it's it's really obvious. I'm sort of digressing. I always do. But you can see it right on the start line. Eh? You can mm. see it there. You can see the teams that have like, there's nothing else we could have done. We're really confident in our abilities. And they enter the water that way. You can see it. And, mm. and, you know, I'd say to Andy, the guy I do the race with, I can normally pick out the teams that are just, they're just going to cruise through really well and enjoy it most importantly. Mm. And then the other teams that are going to battle. So there's this whole plethora of skills. Uh, you know, again, you talked about navigation. People, even though you tell them this, they think there's a riverbank or a riverbank and they think that they can't go wrong and you can't, you, you can't get this wrong. And, uh, you know, but when you're on bird's eye view down and you're not, yeah. not looking at a satellite image and you're like, well, which island's going where? Am I in the main current? Am I not? Uh, and next thing you know, you know, you're on a sandbar mm. and, and, and you're pulling that thing for a K like a polk um, across the sandbar. So, and you've just watched a team come past you that have followed the main channel. So there's so many variables and so many cross skills that, you know, it, it ultimately when, when teams apply, I take them a year out. And, and, and I don't really take anybody inside a year out. So this mm-hmm. year, 27, 28 teams, you know, I've had a, a lot of people ask at the beginning of the year, I'm just not willing to carry that risk. You, you've got to really consume this and be deep into it 12 months out and be really studying it right until you go. You know, I, I just it wouldn't be comfortable six months out taking the team on unless they'd done the race before mm-hmm. uh, as a pair. So there's just too much risk involved, and I, I hope that answers the question. Absolutely, it does, and leads me on to another one, which is around your process of getting people on board, because that's a, a whole process in itself. You're famously oversubscribed for this race, and it's one of those races, I think, where rather than bank balance being the important thing, the statement that they write about their experience, and uh, I know that you've sort of followed um, Coates's example in terms of, of honesty and what needs to be... Um, worked on because this is not a race of egos at at any stage if you come to it thinking that you know everything about everything then something's gonna trip you up and you're not going to do that prep yeah and and, you know so i think it's one of the few things that the military background really helps and so my my background within the military trained a lot of people trained at some really high level places you know um from training young young guys off the streets to the Royal Military Academy Sanders, training the future leaders of the, of the military. So I've got a really good view of, of how people behave, the different types of leadership, the different types of behaviours that, w- that we assume and, and, and we, or we emulate and, and, we, and, and, we then, and then we put into something like this, the pra- practical application of a task, in this case, the UK 1000. So um, there's a couple of things. I, lo- I, like, I really like honesty and integrity. It's really important that you just, in your application, say, yep, uh, this, this is everything I've got. This is everything I can't do. This is the year that I've got. If you say yes, this is how I'll address those issues. And, and obviously, if they're real and tangible, and I can see that, I'm, I'm, I like that. And a bit of bit of character and personality in there is always good. Um, and that just wins. If you if you churn me out a page of, and I get them, I get probably most of the people I turn down of like they've done all the things actually that I want to do. Uh, but they say it in an arrogant, egotistical way 
um, they're not asking me for a spot on the race. They're more or less demanding it in the way they've wrote it. And then, and again, if I'm honest, a lot of the teams are, there's this super athlete person that's done all this and there's somebody they've dragged into it. And so it's not, there's very few complete teams. There's mm. lots of really good individuals and I'll try and pair people now and again, but I just don't really have time to, to pair those people. I'm like, well, if you can't work yourself out and find the right person to match you. And so I'll, I'll try the odd people that, that, that seems to come across really well and pair them. But it, it, there's very, there's enough complete teams to fill the race. If that makes sense of the right pairing yeah. to get together. Uh, and if, in my experience, you don't want two people just the same. You know, if I do an expedition, I'll try not to do it with another, another military guy because he, he thinks like me, he acts like me, and there's just two of me. Uh, and group, group thinks never good. So no. it's always good to have somebody who thinks t- polar opposite to you, challenges your thought, your decisions. And so I look for these teams. Uh, and if it's obvious they've done stuff together, they're pretty humble, maybe they're new to paddling, you know, it, it will jump. It normally jumps off the page at me that this is the right pair. There's always a wee bit of risk uh that, that i carry with a couple of teams uh but i'm i'm yet to sort of been proven wrong really um yeah, yeah and I, I think the opposite concern of that is that some people are just doing this uh for a box ticking exercise i'm just going to go and do the yukon 1000 well that kind of existed when i took the race and mm. i really wanted to stamp that out and I know you're going to ask about rules later, but you know, poor old Peter Coates was, I think, once at the finish point for something like 22 days, maybe even longer, waiting for teams that were on a jolly. And I remember when I did the race, I was like, okay, I'm going to get in the water today, and I'm going to absolutely empty the tank for the next six, seven days. And I remember there was teams there that were just talking about, oh, we just might do eight hours today and pull over and chill out for a while. And I was like, well, this is a race. It's clues in the yeah. title. It's a, it's a race. It's not a holiday. You could do this without the race and just go for a jolly. So it's the bit that I've really pushed hard at, you know, mm. uh, being unsupported, being a totally independent expeditionary race, uh, you against the, you know, your, your, your fellow teams, but also against nature and, and the elements. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's the challenge. Amazing. So your process of actually picking teams, how long does that take? to do because you've got so a lot to go through they'll put an application online and then i'll i'll sort of i'll then uh i'll wait till i've got a nucleus of people i'll break it down into thirds from the mm. applications when i close it down i sort of there's the sort of obvious third that look good the middle third with a few teams in there that are up for it that maybe just haven't written it well and then there's the obviously bottom third that maybe will get up there one day but they're just not quite there they're just jumping in deep um they're probably mistaken us for the yukon river quest if i'm honest <laughs> uh, and so um and they've just gone blind with a bit of ambition and that's great i'll never stifle that and then you so you've got those top two third elements and so then i'll i'll do you know I'll, i can sort of sniff bullshit pretty pretty well so if there's teams that i was this i was that i'll have a quick google or ring a few people you know if the name drop mm. people and if it's like no or yes then i'll sort of cut them away then there's a sort of few people that are famous maybe um and i'll sort of question why they're doing it is mm-hmm. this I, I've, I've had quite a few that sort of won't drop anyone in it but and i'm like is this for a tv program is this for a doc and if it is i'll cut them away like i don't mm-hmm. need the media i, I like mm-hmm. it's like the beauty of running your race i run it how i want to run it and i always think of me doing it and i yeah. was lucky that i did this race before i owned it yeah so you know i don't want to take risk of people compromising that and so and, and there's various elements to that and i do take risks i've had a couple of people who've done the race that have been terminal 
with cancer and they haven't had long to live. And some of them also been sort of pretty pretty well known in this sort of adventure endurance world. And so I don't really want to compromise their moment as well. They've come mm. along to do this, not to get. And that's why I do lots of things like start at seven, you know, six thirty, seven in the morning in the middle mm. of White Horse. No one's going to be there, and that's yeah. the way I like it. No, yeah. I like it like that. I'm miserable, yeah. and no one's going to be at the end. You know, I don't do fanfare and parties. Well, you know, and, yeah, and I, and I don't do you know gifts. It's like it's for this experience is for you, uh, and I'm going to give you the best experience possible. But it's about you. It's not about fanfare parties and Twitter or whatever social media. So. But you've got to tell the story as well. And it's important that we, we share the story. Some of these magnificent people. So mm. I'll work it into these thirds. Uh, and then from there, I'll interview everybody that I think makes the cut. We'll do a, we'll do an online screen interview, uh, a quick call. And it's obvious if they get on, if they don't, I'll ask a few questions and I'll ask what they're going to do in the next year to prepare. I'll question about a few things in their, in their, in their write up, whether I've got any sort of suspicions about it. And then I'll sort of walk, work, walk away. I'll have a board. I'll work it out, and I'll say, "Yep." And I'll let everybody know on the same go that they're in. Uh, and 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 I won't. I never go over, so I'll go for thirty teams, and thirty teams is it. And then uh, uh, you know, what do we get to last year? It, it will whittle down. You know, COVID's mm. still a thing. Illness is still a thing. Travel's still a thing. And so yeah, we're at twenty-seven this year. I'm probably guessing, if, like last year. Maybe 25, 20 to 25 will make it to the start line next year. By the time Dawson City comes past, maybe we're at 18, 19 teams. So that's kind of statistically where we are. Uh, and I like that. Um, and it doesn't matter how many boats were available. It doesn't matter how much logistic was available. I think that's the top end. I'd run the race at 30 teams for the experience of the racer. Yeah. And, and, and you said about maintaining it. It's all about the experience. There are very few races you know, if any, which you can experience the, the sort of self-reliance and the isolation that you can within the Yukon 1000. And and obviously technology being everywhere, that can be a real risk. You end up sort of concentrating on taking the next photo or, or tweeting where you are rather than really experiencing, you know, the landscape that you're going through. Yeah, it's, hey, it's, it's a real thing on so many levels. So, yeah, you know, the, the First Nation people up there, the Alabascans, the Upics will say, that they'll call it the big green monster, that it will eat you. Um, and it, it really does affect people. You know, some people really, they do really get up there and they've never really zoomed out on Google Earth to see how remote it is. And then you sort of, you do see it in people's faces at Dawson City, you know. You can see, so I say to people at Dawson, you can come past, I'll just see you from the bank. You know, that's it. We, we don't need to make visual contact. I'm not you can see the teams that crawl right along the bank. They just want to see you. They just mm. want to look you in the eye and you can tell them everything's okay. Of course, I don't tell them anything. <laughs> uh, you know, I say, just keep paddling. Stop talking to me. Go, go. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're struggling with it. Hey, the remoteness. And so, uh, and it, it's a real deal. And some people have contacted me about it. Hey, some, and, and said it's really affected them after the race. And you can be in a kayak or a canoe or a stand up paddleboard. And you know, the closest you are is in a canoe or a kayak and you're, 12 feet apart uh, on a race boat in, in a, on a, on a stand-up puddle board even further, that wind all day, you're not even talking to each other for 18 hours. Mm. You know, you're not having a conversation. You're on your own. Um, so it's a, it's a tough old gig. Um, and then, you know, as you said, the, the, the wilderness, and, and you've, you've got to, well, there's so few places that replicate that. Uh, and there's that daunt, there's a step feeling. So you get past Dawson and then it's it's the real deal then. There's like, there's just, even when you're researching it as a researcher, you'll find that that's it. It's like the, the world ends, it falls off <laughs> a cliff. 
there's no knowledge uh, and there's no one up there. Um, and so it's really daunting for racers. And, I, you know, I remember that feeling thinking, okay, if it goes wrong now, now I'm really in it. Uh, mm. This is the real deal. And so yeah, that's, again, going back to your first question, why I've really got to be selective. You know, are these thinking bright people, egos, as the All Blacks say, there's no room for dickheads. You know, the, the reality is, is when this goes wrong, it's other teams time and time again that recover other teams. Um, that's the real safety blanket. You know, um, you, you pull that pin and you want rescue to come, um, then it's it's likely going to take maybe days, maybe 10 hours, depending on the wind, where they're going to land, how they're going to get there. They've got to work that out and it's, it's no mean feat. And so technology to do that is the risk I carry all the time. Going back to your question is how do I track this? Technology is all about two-way communication now. Um, I don't want that. Um, I just want people to get in the boat, have a satellite phone that's fully charged and go. And there's a ping in the boat, a spot tracker that pings. But it's becoming harder because that's old technology. People want more now. They want two-way messaging. It's a struggle. I'll, I'll, work, I'll work through it because uh, I'm really, really keen to give people that, you know, you're not Googling your way out of this. We're using, you know, I read an article the other year about a team that went across, they did the Talisker Whiskey Race, and they had such good sponsorship that they, you know, played Bay, B, BBC Radio 4 through their sat phone for all the way, you know, like tens of thousands of pounds. But yeah. I, people can throw money at this race if they really want to, and I, I want to cut that out. I'm mm. like, you're all on an even playing field, complete parity. doesn't matter how much money you've got or where you're from or who's sponsoring you, you're all on the same playing field. So, I balance that risk and it's really hard, but but people let people down. So going back to your original question, the people that have used sat phones have all been caught. And that's mm. that's before he, that's before they even finish the race. Because as humans as we are, mm. bushfires, wilderness, bears running up the beach, people aren't experienced it. They ring their wives or their loved ones and go, oh my God, you know, I've just nearly been eaten by a bear, but I'm having the time of my life to hang up. And then their yeah. loved ones ring me. Their loved ones ring me with an hour on Facebook, going, "Help! Is he going to be okay? Like, how do you know? Like, mm. How do you know he's so? Yeah. You know, it, yeah, not yeah, not, but, not 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 very sophisticated. That you've got to enjoy that isolation, haven't you? And that's the whole point of of all of this sort of stuff. So, just sort of building on that, I guess, and, and tying back to your point about nutrition, we're we're basically evolutionary still the same sort of state that we were 10,000 years ago. We didn't have powders and all of that sophisticated stuff. I've done long multi-day endurance events using gels. And honestly, you know, you, you do, um, you know, there's a, a residue in the mouth that only a multi-day adventure with gels kind of uh, tells you. Uh, but yeah, it's all about keeping it honest, keeping it old school, I think. And if you can get a ham sandwich, obviously not on the Yukon, probably, probably MREs, isn't it? Meals ready to eat. Isn't that what you yeah, yeah. went down on? Yeah, yeah, it is. No, you're absolutely right. And it's, but it's like, um, it's like, like, like you're talking about, you've got to trial everything before you come. Yeah. And so it's really obvious, again, going back to the teams that have done this, not the ones that are just turning up going for it. Um, and you, you're looking at them from the shore or the packing inspection. You're like, oh my God, that ain't going to work. You know, like, oh man. And, and then I sort of, I build a risk to, you know, those that I think are a risk um, early on and have a quick look and think, okay, you know, maybe they blagged it a little bit here or maybe they haven't. That's just an area that mm. has been bottom of that bottom of their pile for research. Mm. Uh, and they're pretty confident they're going to be okay. So yeah, it, I mean, it's, it, it's, it, it's always tricky, but you like, like exactly as you say, you know, um, 
I can see the team that bring, you know, solid, decent food, like meals ready to eat or, you know, um, free, the good freeze-dried stuff and they've got a couple of sauces in there and they snuck a loaf of bread in there for the first two days <laughs> to make it slightly better. Yeah. You know, you can see that. And, and going back to your question about the sort of the six hours rest, it's, it's funny, the military teams, has quite a few military guys that do it. And I, I, there's no preference, I don't take them, but it they – they are nowhere near as good paddlers as most of the teams, but they're very good at their six hours discipline rest. Mm, yeah. You know, and, and, and that's feedback from the races. They're like, Oh, we camped on the opposite Island from these guys. And within 15 minutes, the tent was up. They'd eaten their food and gone to bed. Yeah. And we were like, we were like building fires and washing clothes, yeah. and, you know? And it's, it's like, well, you know, seven days of that. Yeah. You're probably only getting re- that six hours sleep. You're probably only honestly getting about, four hours yeah. a night you're probably a proper sleep you're probably only getting about four hours if, if you're lucky you know the cumulative effect of that is you just deteriorate in any way and i remember when i first did the race and six hours like six hours that's steady away i'm pretty chuffed with that and that's easy um but it's not it doesn't matter you know uh i was yeah i was hallucinating by day five mm. six mm. you know consistently and everybody does and i think the beauty about the race, you know, uh, is, and your partner is, if you really want to empty the tank and stretch yourself, you're going to do that for sure. Mm. You know, um, uh, and, how, and how you're going to go for it. Yeah. So yeah, it doesn't matter who you are, how fit you are, it's going to get you. The bit that tends to sort of catch you out, I guess, is, is the end bit. So, you know, if, if you're very highly organized, you get your kit on the bank, you, you set up your, your tent, you eat, but it's waking up and getting everything back in a decent state into your yeah. boat or whatever. And that can yeah. really trip you up, particularly if you're knackered. Yeah, you're absolutely, you see it in teams. So you see it in teams that it'll start to slip on the tracker. I'll be looking at it and it was like day one, day two, they're all bang on six hours mm. and they're moving. Day three, four <laughs> or five teams. 20 minutes late a couple of teams maybe a bit later and then it becomes acceptable well, we've done it now let's and it slips and it slips and then there's the old team that go an hour hour over because they can convince themselves they absolutely need it um and then and that's it they know they're not in it anymore so they're just they're just their morale dips you can see when they hit the line that they didn't give it their all they're disappointed with the game plan it didn't go to it didn't go to go to plan the game mm. plan um, and they get they get pretty upset with themselves. Also, this obsession with having the perfect campsite, you mm. know, yeah, like is like it baffles me. Like the, the obsession with faffing around for an hour, going, you know, I remember when I did the race, I was like, what time is it? It's like fifteen minutes till eleven. You know, there go mm. up, gone, sleep, done. And I presumed everybody was doing that, but people will drift for sort of an hour, and you can see it in their speed. Mm. Oh, that looks that looks beautiful. We'll go there, but but then confidence builds because people are worried about wildlife. You know, grizzlies don't swim, black bears do. If you can get on an island, mm. there's an element of safety, and people obsess over the bears mm. uh, and then realize it's 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 lower risk than they think it is. Mm. You know, the the big old it's the headline, isn't it? Yeah, people do obsess over the bears and, and, and there's sort of, there's a cross border thing there. Mm. Canadians don't worry about them. The other side do probably make them out a little bit more dangerous than they are. Um, but really you're a greater danger to, to yourself than the, all that is. You're tired. Um, you start cutting corners, start getting complacent and that's your biggest danger over, the, over any, anything out there for sure. Mm. Uh, and that's something I always drive into the races, you know, and, and, and all the near misses that, that always come out at the end. Remember a team last year, they sort of come around the back end of an Island. 
they're sort of aiming for the corner. It's like sort of seven in the morning. They've never done it before. Two blokes, great guys. And they were like, they clipped the back end of a log that was sticking out. Over they went. By the time they've gone over and drifted out, they're in the middle of the river. They're sort of 500 meters either side from shore. And they're like, my God, you know, mm. seven in the morning, it's freezing. The sun's not properly up yet. And it's like game on, survival. You've got to get in that open mm. canoe. You've got to get to shore. Um, you know, another team comes around the corner and sees them. Sort of 20 minutes later, gets them, drags them ashore, builds them a fire, you know, pretty much saves them, really. That, that, that has happened every year, mm. for sure, that, that story. So, you know, I'd really be devastated if I lose someone on this race, but a realistic element at some point, it's mm. probably going to happen. You know, I think when I went, when I did the 2000, uh, and had to go at the sort of the record all the way to the sea in 19, I think six people died on that river when I was going down it and most of them were drowning, hit log jams, stuff like that. And, were, and most of them were people that lived up there. So it's a, it's a really dangerous river. There's no two ways about it. And I think as soon as you sort of take it for granted, get complacent about it, it's probably going to catch you out. Oh, so hundred percent. And, and you know, the lesson isn't just for the Yukon. Most of the fatalities that have had happened over the last few years in SUP have happened on rivers and it's, you know, flow and taking things for granted. So, you know, some real lessons there. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to talk to you about the different kit because obviously, you know, we talked a lot about paddling. Everything that we said so far could apply across all paddle sports, but we're, we're a SUP yeah. podcast. And I just wanted to talk to you about the sort of different modes of, uh, of transport there. So you've got the canoes, you've got the kayaks, you've got the SUPs. And uh, when I was speaking to Bart Desbart, I mean, I, I'm not sure whether there are too many advantages to, to going down there on a SUP. He said one of the key ones was is that when it came to that six hours, he could just hop off his sup and then get straight into it. Whereas I think, you know, sometimes after, I mean, maybe after about four or five days in a kayak, you need your mate to help sort of manoeuvre you out of the uh, the seat because you're, you're kind of fixed in a position, aren't you? Um, yeah, mate. So, so there's a couple of things uh, and you're uh, – and. And my, so I've never done stand up paddling boarding, and I was like, oh, let's get it in the race. And, mm. and actually, last year was a really key thing that made me think a lot about stand up paddle boarding. So uh, they are just safer. So on so many levels, right? And, and I, so I'll take it from this. Last year, the water was at a record high. I mean, going through Firefinger Rapids was 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 pretty special. It really was. And it was, the, it was the first time um, that, that I hired a jet boat and sat on the other side of the rocks, tied off, watching people come through. You know, And it was a hell of an experience. Of all. I was not worried about the stand-up paddle boards mm. at all. Those guys are going to take a dip each day. They're going to know what the f- water feels like. They're never going to get complacent because they know it's chilly. And they know they can get back on th- pretty easy. Uh, and so those guys just sat on their boards and straight through, no worries. Um, and they're sort of low in the water. Um really no risk whereas on the race you know going through those rapids when you've been on flat beautiful water you know they're only short rapids so you're just you haven't got time there's no gentle you're into it you're in Mm. and so that's a worry especially when people are fatigued and tired that that, that you're not going to it's not the safety element that stand-up paddle boards is not there you're a distance apart on the stand-up paddle boards so you safety and recovery for each other is is greater probability it's greater mm. chance you're tied to them as well um and so and also you can just watching you guys get on it and comfy i've seen people camp on them you know put push put up their tent on them and sleep yeah, on them. yeah. great completely transformed you know whether you go hard or 
hard or inflatable. You know, that's your call. And if I was going to do it, I'm still not sure which one I one I do. But um, yeah, totally transformed. They are they are a safe bit of kit, and they have proven themselves on the race for mm. sure in mm. the harshest conditions, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, and last year, they you know they really came into their own in really serious high water. They were just, they were just off my wrist register. Saw those guys just going through through the rapids, just sat on there chilling out, talking to each other. You know. <laughs> Just, just not bothered at all. Yeah. Uh, and there is that element, like I say, where every day they're sort of through fatigue, they'll fall off their boat, jump in the water, yeah. and then, then, then they're reminded how yeah. cold it is. Yeah. With the rest of the rest of the, you know, the rest of the teams, when they capsize and go in, it will be for real. Mm. You know, they'll have a yard sale. The chances are all the teams that capsized last year at Five Finger Rapids, even though they squared their kit away, they're tired. Bits were falling out, and bits yeah. were everywhere. You've got no choice on a stand-up paddleboard. Yeah. You've got to be all over your administration. Uh, and those guys always have top-end kit because uh, they've got to be min- minimalistic. Um, and they're always super squared away. I'm always really impressed with their boat admin and everything tied down. They never lose stuff. It's squared away. They can't take that risk because they're all mm. over it. Sadly, yeah. Even though they were top teams last year, the sort of three teams that ca- ca- that went over in the Five Fingers. You know, they had yard sales and they mm. lost some important kit that, you know, compromised them carrying on with the race. Yeah. So the safety angle, as you said, you know, uh, last year was a real test of that. And they are firmly in the race to stay now, the standard mm. paddle boards, based off last year for sure. We'd like to thank Baltic Life Jackets for returning as episode sponsors this season. Baltic designed and developed their SUP Elite PFDs to solve two key problems facing stand-up paddlers. The slim-down front panel makes it easier to climb back on your board, and the ergonomic cutaways around the arms accommodate the SUP stroke, allowing you to paddle freely without restriction to the point that you hardly notice you're even wearing it. The SUP Elite also incorporates storage and the option to add a hydration pack, which is perfect for the summer. So check out the SUP Elite and the SUP Pro PFD at your local stockist or at supfmpodcast.com forward slash Baltic. Looking to take your performance to the next level? Then look no further than Ocean Specific. Introducing the Strike Series VRX, the ultimate SUP paddle designed for maximum power and efficiency. Its firm flex shaft optimizes energy transfer for efficient paddling. Its double dihedral blade ensures an unrivaled grip on the water, boosting your surfing, racing and touring performance. Ocean Specific sponsors and promotes UK surf and race culture, supporting athletes and adventure racing teams, including the Shack team competing in this year's Yukon 1000. And they're committed to providing professional grade equipment at an accessible price. Visit oceanspecific.com today to explore their range of high performance paddles, hardware and apparel. And the links to all of our sponsors are in the show notes. And, and nav as well must be um, a lot better when you're sort of, you know, you've got all of that braiding there. You can you can see see the route forward, can't you? And you and you know the other thing with sup as well, and you kind of develop this is you have to be really dialed into reading the water and the water flow. Yeah, yeah. The standard paddleboarders can read the flow of the water, and they get, they've just elevated enough where they can see it and they can see the dangers coming. They're alert all the time because they're stood up, you know, mm. for most of the time. So, so you're right. I think the only risk that carried was or worry area for us was in the flats region with the wind. Mm. And would that, would that just bring them to a standstill? Mm. And that hasn't happened yet. So, no. um, you know, there's days they've had to sit on the boards, keep low profile and push through the wind. Uh, but 
they've held their own and they've done well to the to the point where last year I was considering do we need to set them off a day early? Do we not? Do they just do we just mix them in with the race? Um, you know that the, the right people are doing it as well. That, that yeah. also helps. Yeah. yeah. And what, what's your view on that? Because obviously they don't have the same sort of glide. They're not the same length as the the canoes and kayaks. So there is a sort of speed disadvantage, or there can be. Yeah. I, again. I think you're right, Simon, and it's really honest um, because some people don't think that. And it's the same against the kayak and the canoe. You know, they just can go longer and cut through the water better. But I think, again, a couple of, a couple of points that you raised, you know, if, if, again, a, a canoe is you're down, a kayak, you're down low, horrendous position, toll on the body. Whereas, you know, you see people in a canoe get out at the end of the day, they're a lot fresher. Again, <laughs> stand-up paddle, stand mm. paddleboard, you're elevated. You've got, you've got the advantage of playing the currents to your advantage mm. better. You, you have for sure you can get through them a wee bit better you can navigate a bit better um and so and a lot of stand-up paddleboarders as well i've had some time in the sea um in my experience the ones that have done it they've had some time in the sea so they don't really get freaked out by a bit of rough water uh, a bit of harsh conditions a cold rainy day they're just kind of not really bothered with that yeah. and they tend to have the awesome kit to deal with it so mm-hmm. that tends they tend to expect that, not to not to think it was something that will slow them down. Whereas kayaks and canoes, they sort of can think, oh, you know, it can get to them a wee bit. They're just mm. not. They don't have that seafaring experience. Yeah. I'm speaking for myself here as well. You know, yeah. I don't have I don't have that sea experience on a kayak or a canoe. Uh, but they most stand up paddleboarders they've been out on the on the, on the open water and sea, mm. and they're, they're just a bit more confident. I think. Yeah. on water yeah definitely it's more of a, a mix of conditions so i think it'd be wrong of me not to talk about um some of the the competitors and you talked about um it being quite a level race in terms of experience when you come to it with those skills and a lot of the the people who perform best particularly in in canoe class um are older competitors you've got competitors in their 60s and 70s who who push harder and well whether they push harder or just they know the way to push but certainly their results are absolutely up there um and i think it was dave and hamish last year couple of yeah. new zealand guys and i know that you've had other sort of similar dynamic partnerships in the, in the past can you just talk about how age is not a, a disabling factor for competing in this yeah it's a great not only age, but clearly gender. Uh, mm. it, it it really isn't. But yeah, you, you, you're right. And so, so I think I think you know what am I now? Forty forty seven. So I, uh, yeah, I've had a lot of time running, and I've got some pretty wrecked knees, and I'm still in denial, and I keep running. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, naturally, probably most people's upper body hasn't really been pushed. So, and I think I think probably that evens out the playing field a wee bit. You know mm. that, that we, we just haven't used it uh, as much, maybe. And then there's the element of technique. Um, some of these these old boys have been bashing out, and they just know the right cadence at the right time of day mm. and how to push it. And so, and, and they also just know how the body feels at certain mm. stages, and they just knuckle down and just get on with it. So there's a certain, I think there's a, there's a you know, as, as I'm, I'm pushing on now in my forties, there's a certain level of I'm maybe not as quick, and I'm maybe not as um, um, uh, repair as well, but the endurance. Mm. I know what's coming. I, I know that when I'm in the hurt locker, I know when I'm in it, and I know I know just keep pushing through it. So, and I'm pretty sure it's the same for these guys. They mm. just know when they're in the hurt locker, it's uncomfortable, but they've been there before. And I think this race opens a door to the younger people that necessarily 
think they've been in the Hurt Locker, but not in this way. Yeah. Not uh, not with sleep sleep depredation sprinkled on top. So I think a unique thing about the races, unlike many others, is that there is no tented camp when you land that day. Somebody pulling your boat out for you, giving you a massage, throwing a burger down you, <laughs> uh, and saying, I'll sort your boat out for you, Bob. See you in the morning. Go and get eight hours head down, see you in the morning. It's like, if you haven't got your admin dialed in, it's you. Yeah. It's you, it's you deteriorating you. You know, you are supporting each other and you, and that is it. And so if you haven't done those type of stuff before, then you're just going to deteriorate and mm. your admin's going to fall apart. And like you hear teams like, day three, we stopped cooking and we just ate cold food. Mm. Like just another little yeah. chink off you, isn't it? It's going to hit the morale. Yeah. So I, th- I, t- I tend to think that the, the, the older generation turn up, they are, they are mentally prepared. They've got something to prove. They want to push it out there. Um, they know where they're, that where they're going to go, as in the Hurt Locker. They know that it's going to be that way, and they're going to be uncomfortable for a long period of time. And they, and they just they've been there before, mm-hmm. and so and they have no ego. So therefore, it's they're, they're there for mm-hmm. the ego's gone. The showing mm-hmm. off to other teams is gone. They're just there for them mm-hmm. and their team, and it's that's really evident, really evident, and really nice to be around as a race director. And they, yeah, I'm not surprised. So when I did the race, I was like, I was, I was, was I 30 something? I was Barnick. And the bloke I did it with was like, even, he made me nervous just looking at him. He was an absolute machine. <laughs> and when we turned up, you know, there was uh, two chaps, I'm still in contact today, that run, won my race. And um, two old, two old boys. And they were like, they were like in their late 60s, 70s, like, yeah. You know, sort of, I always sort of talk about they'd lost half their kit and the, the airlines on the way there and we'd give them a load of rations and they'd give us a couple of tips and they were great blokes. And, you know, sort of, I'm there in my lycra and my sort of CrossFit shorts getting into my boat. You know, <laughs> this guy gets in, in a polo shoe and a pair of jeans. Um, um, but, you know, th- this guy could shift water. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, and, and he could just, and he could shift it and he wasn't letting up. And I remember mm. just chasing him across Lake Labarge thinking, I'm hanging out and this guy is mm. just doing what he does. Yeah. He's just, he's just, he's just, he's just been here before mm. uh, upstairs, you know? So it, I, I guess it's an interesting argument about now ultra running, like why, why are women just smashing out of the park and ultra mm. running? Mm. You know, it's so many questions, isn't there? And I, it's, I think ego is a big part of it. Eh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not having an ego. Um, but they're just, I just, yeah, I, I can't, I can't give the answer. If you, we do this in a couple more years. Yeah. There's no, in, there's no ingredients. Eh? Yeah. I can't, I can't narrow it down. Why they're just the right people. And they're just lots of experience and hungry for it still. Well, that's it. I, th- I think you're right. I think it's down to the ego. I think physiologically as well, you're right. That's the way that human body works. You push yourself into that pain zone and a bit further, and you've had all of the other experiences as well. Just gives you that confidence and that resilience. But yeah, just endlessly uh, impressive, that, those sorts of results, particularly the jeans and the polo shirt. That's uh, that's fantastic. I love that. So you mentioned um, that um, you were looking at the 2000, the Yukon 2000, is that sort of in concept still or, or how, how developed is that as an event at the moment? Yeah. So, so I've w- I went and did it. So mm. I went, I went and climbed up the hills and then went all the way to the sea in 19. And then, I, you know, in the back of my mind was, yeah, maybe this could be a race in the future. So, so absolutely it's more than a concept. It's, it's going to happen. There are a few, few things I need to work out. So, it isn't really going to work for a stand-up paddleboard at that distance being mm. unsupported, and it's not really going to work for a kayak. No. 
you're just not going to get that kind of cargo to be 30 days self-sufficient. Um, that isn't really going to work. And that's the bit I was wrestling with. And even most canoes aren't going to cut that detail. So mm. I'm probably going to have after bespoke canoes made at the moment for that. Now that may change. I may open that up in time to kayak or, or stand up paddleboard as, as things develop. I don't know, but my first couple of times I run it, it will be a bespoke canoe mm. that's built built for the race, and I'll set them off on the first day of the Yukon 1000 people. So they'll set off with them mm. um, and then probably hold them at Dalton Highway Bridge for an 18-hour period in force rest, and then the rules will change for them from that point onwards. From that point onwards, they'll take – this is the beauty of done, having done that part of, of, the, of the river – they'll take their six hours rest when they want to take it in a 24 hour period mm-hmm. as opposed to it being in a window. And the reason for that is because, because the mountain ranges are less up there and it becomes flatter and there are longer legs. The wind is, is horrendous. And so there's days where you just can't even in a canoe move during mm-hmm. the day and you just have to sit it out. Mm-hmm. And so you have to, you have to basically move when the wind stops. So, so it's great doing it from that perspective that I can add that value that I know actually that doesn't work. Um, and so they're, they're probably the race rules. And then I just don't know where to get out. And it's the, it's like everything else up there. Logistics is a huge mm. challenge. Mm. Getting people and equipment out. It's, it's really hard um, because so few people live there. Mm. So you can Google whatever you want, but you've got to go there and meet these people, look them in the eye, shake their hand mm. and, and do that journey to understand it. So, you know, and again, how do I support that from a, from a race director perspective? You know, how I, it, as soon as they get, as soon as Dal- Dalton Highway Bridge only exists because of the Valdez pipeline, it wouldn't be there if there was no oil pipeline. So there'd be there'd be no exit point. So beyond that, there's just nothing. Yeah. That is the last bridge. There's, that's the last bridge. So there's a couple of things I've got to work out. There's a lot of interest. A lot of people email me saying they really want to do the 2000, and not that I would ever make my race mandatory. I'm gonna. I would say to people that you have to do the thousand before mm. you do the 2000. Um, purely to let you, because you've ironed out a lot of the the stuff and you've been through the flashpoints of the river. Um, but even the, there's people that have done the thousand that I wouldn't accept to do the two thousand. So it's a small finite group. I run it probably every two years, maybe not every. So every two to three years, I run that race. I'll probably keep it down to five, ten teams the first time I run it. So it's coming, and then it's a confidence thing, isn't it? It's like year three now that I've run the race and the sups. I'm pretty sure it's a cemented in the here to stay. Everything that I'd been warned of the stand-up paddle boards before I took it on, I've not seen that. So I don't agree with some of the criticisms that were sort of put on my door. When I took on the race, I don't agree with them. I think finding people that are used to multi-day events yeah. in, in, in the sub community is harder. Yeah. I think that there's a draw to kayaking, canoeing, mm-hmm. that's camping and it's multi-day events as opposed to stand-up paddle and boarding. But I think that's changing. So... Uh, I think the race helps change that. So does the Yukon River Quest help change that? So, um, yeah, I, I think that will be the 2000 will start probably 2024. Amazing. So um, what's your relationship with the First Nation? Um, what's their view of the race? Obviously, they've lived there for thousands of years. Yeah, so it took me a bit of time to work out what, what that is, you know, how, how that looks. And so... I think, I think first and foremost, if you if you study the area, you'll realise quite quickly that they don't really cast themselves as Canadians. And then you go mm. across the border into Alaska, they don't really maybe think they're Americans. They'll call themselves Northlanders. They're sort mm. of as one. 
And so, and those tribal areas that they just, they don't really identify as boundaries and they go all the way through. So you've got to work through that in the first place. And it's a great thing I've learned from the military, you know, sort of, you, you learn a lot of that, the demographics of populations. And so carrying that over, there's these great sort of different tribes of people along the river. I think it's 27 different languages of, and First Nation tribes along the river, just on the Canadian side. Uh, and so I think if you take the time to learn that and understand that, uh, it shows an element of respect. And so therefore it's reciprocating and given back to you. And so, um, and I think that there's also an understanding that we're bringing a lot of people into an area that people necessarily wouldn't go to. You know, there's a, you're limited in, I'm also limited number of people to the race on hotel rooms, Mm. on vessels available, you know, not, not just that I'm keeping it small because I want it to have the right experience. I'm limited anyway. And I'm, Mm. I really like that. But also you bring a lot of people from around the world into an area where the economy is struggling into, and you're bringing them showing this part of the world and hopefully they come back. Mm. So they really get that. And yeah, I think they're great. I think they're just awesomely, you know, I'm always in admiration of the first nation people, you know, and you think, you think when you're going down the river, you're like 10,000 years ago, they'd, they'd have seen what I'm seeing and nothing has changed. Mm. Yeah. You know, except these these people had far more skills than you did, and there's a lot more fish in the river. So, yeah, the the, the reception from them is is, is brilliant. I've been and I integrate them as much as I can. Like I get a, a First Nation chief to come down and do a blessing before they leave leave. The and where I where I can pass on a little bit of education to people, you know, you mustn't forget those who went before you in anything you do. Um, you know, we'll never know as much as these guys do for mm. sure. You know, they, 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 you know, generations are going to be out on the river. And so, and I'll stop. And when I go down with the veterans, I'll stop at a couple of key places that look out for the races at Fort Selkirk and stuff. And I, I take them a box of English tea and uh, sit and have a good brew with them and spin a yarn. And there's some, there's some yeah, terrific people. So it, it, it's really good. Well reciprocated. As I say, the Yukon, I'm a Brit, but the Yukon, the 1000 is, you know, it's Canadian registered business, a Yukon registered business. It's the only place in Canada where they welcome outside business and have their own rules and laws. And I, I think they're just usually thankful that so many of the right people want to come there mm. and experience that part of the world, you know, uh, and they're the right people that look after the river. You know, they, they know, you know, they're not going to do stupid things. Again, the right type of people who draw aren't going to take barbecues with them and stuff like that and do silly things and cause, yeah. cause you know, cause chaos. chaos. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really great. It really is. And it's the same, same reciprocated in Alaska. You know, mm. um, people that people are drawn to people that like the same thing, you know. Amen. Amen to that. That's a, that's a great uh, thing to sum up with. Well, John, thanks so much for your time. I mean, it's a fantastic race, really exciting. And but thanks so much for, for coming on the show. And thanks for all the, the work you're doing. It, it's absolutely fantastic. It's definitely a one off. So really looking forward to the 2023 iteration of the Yukon 1000. Thanks, Simon. Cheers, mate. So thanks to John and to the Yukon 1000 team for freeing up to speak to us because he was just on the point of hot-footing it out west to lead the Yukon 700, guiding eight Grenadier veterans, five with life-changing injuries, downriver, unsupported, and just ahead of the ramp-up for the 1000 event. So there was a lot going on for him. 
Yukon 700 is a worthy cause, so if you're inclined and can afford to give, we've got the fundraising page linked to in our show notes, alongside all the links to the main Yukon 1000 race, so you can follow and keep up to date with the main event pre and post race. So that's it for this episode. Please don't forget to follow SUPFM Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. See you next week, and hopefully I'll also see you on the water. Thank you.